Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Hamilton will host the Ontario Liberal AGM this weekend. One of the main talking points, we'll get into that with Mitzi Hunter, one of the MLAs from the area. As foreign interference allegations continue to stack up, we're going to discuss what we've learned so far with Michael Kempa, Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa, and Loblaws receiving more criticism, this time for rubbing salt into the wounds of consumers as they ask shoppers for money to support their charities. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, the Liberals are coming. The Liberals are coming. Uh, to Hamilton, that is. Uh, the uh, Ontario uh, Liberal Party will be holding their annual general meeting in Hamilton this coming weekend. And uh, as uh, Kim Wright, the uh, founder and principal of Wright Strategies, uh, told uh, CHML's Good Morning Hamilton show earlier this morning, uh, there's some interesting aspects of what might be happening during this convention. I think you're going to see more divisions than ever coming out of this AGM. This is a part of the Ontario Liberal Party, which, you know, reigned Ontario for quite some time, is in a complete state of disarray. They don't know who they are, how they want to vote. There's certainly questions about some of the candidates if they've ever been to campus gasing, let alone outside of the GTHA. There, this is a big province with big issues, and I'm not certain that the Liberals know what they're going to do. I mean, we don't have to look much further than their ill-fated draft Mike Schreiner campaign, uh, which became almost a cocktail party joke at some point. So they, they're really going to have to come out of this in a much better place, and I don't see it happening. Ouch. Uh, That's her opinion. Uh, Let's talk to our next guest about that, though, because she's one of the people that will be here. Uh, She is Mitzi Hunter. She's the MPP for Scarborough-Guildwood and a veteran of the uh, Ontario legislature. Uh, Mitzi, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us on the show today. Hi, Bill. It's great to be here on your show. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to coming to Hamilton. And I, I love coming to Hamilton, actually. Um, so so really looking forward to the weekend there and gathering with my Ontario Liberal family. Let me ask you, I, I, you just heard from, uh, and, and I mean, consultants, are, you know, Kim Wright, of course, has been doing this for quite some time with Wright Strategies. But she seems to, I think, characterize a lot of the concerns that people have about the Ontario Liberal Party. Uh, You've been around for a while in the legislature. You've seen the ups and the downs of it. Uh, This is a party that many people think is is looking right now for direction. And I think the first question uh, that the the party probably has to ask, and, and a lot of people will be looking for, is just who is the Liberal Party and what do you stand for these days? Yeah, I, I think that's what the gathering this weekend is is doing for us. It's our it's our annual general meeting. It's actually the largest gathering we've had in over two decades. Um, we have over fifteen hundred delegates that are reg- registered for the AGM, and uh, and there's a lot of excitement and and you know people are energized. I've I've talked to people in uh, Gray Bruce Owen Sound who are coming down, uh, people from the north, uh, all over um, uh, rural northern, and of course, um, uh, the southwest Ontario will be there. Uh, I'm sure there will be people from London, so I know your London listeners, uh, yep. Bill, are, are listening in for that. Uh, they will have a voice and a say in, in first of all, we're going to select a, a new president of our party, which will be very important, and, and brand new executive. Uh, many of the positions on the executive or contested. So there's a lot of debate and uh, people reaching out. And of course, the big debate on the floor is going to be uh, the rules around selecting our next leader. And uh, and so we are um, very excited about that, having that discussion and uh, hopefully coming away with some um, modernization aspects of our of our party's constitution. Well, well let's talk about that, because I, I know that's a big discussion uh, within the party. 
but you know, those on the outside looking in are looking at it the same way too. I mean, the, the last couple of leadership conventions for the Ontario Liberals, anyway, have been the old-fashioned way. In other words, uh, you know, the, the riding associations elect delegates and they go off to the convention and they basically select the leader. Uh, most other political parties, <clears throat> excuse me, have uh, have moved into one party. Uh, one delegate, rather, one mem- party member with one vote. In other words, it's it's not done in that fashion. It, it's it's a it's a little more involved process, but it seems to work. Uh, you guys seem to be the last one that are hanging on to the, to that element. Are, are you anticipating that this is going to change now in this upcoming leadership race? I do, and and you know, Bill, I in 2019 um, at the AGM, um, myself and my local riding association, we led the the debate around switching to one member one vote. Um, just instinctively, really felt that it was more democratic that you know each member of the party could vote directly for the leader, and um, and it came it came very close. Um, it was 57 percent that passed that resolution, but it needed a supermajority. This time round, um, the party itself has done a lot of work, um, surveys and uh, different conversations uh, with members of the of the party. We've had a number of riding associations that have weighed in on a resolution uh, to change. We're modeling it after the federal liberals who who had their um, switch uh, to one member, one vote uh, all the way back uh, in in 2013, I believe it was. Um, and so this is not new. Um, I believe we're the only major party that's still holding on to the old delegated style of selecting our leader. And uh, and it's time we do away with that. Um, what I really want to see is the grassroots really feeling empowered, feeling that they're heard and that uh, and that that they're needed, because that is what, um, you know, democracy is about. It is about people seeing themselves as part of this party. And uh, and that's what's going to take us to victory in 2026. Speaking of leadership, Mitzi, uh, uh, this is not, by the way, a leadership convention. I just want to remind our listeners, this is the AGM. You're going to be talking, as you say, about electing an executive for the party uh, and, and some policy issues, et cetera. Uh, but down the road, uh, there will be a leadership uh, convention and a leadership race anyway for the Ontario Liberals. Uh, you are rumored to be one of the people that's interested in the top job. Uh, where are you on that now as far as making a decision is concerned? Uh, well, Bill, ahead of this weekend's uh, AGM, you know, I, I I wrote a statement to to the members of of our party, just letting them know that upon my own reflection, and this is personal to me, that you know I, I was not going to be seeking the leadership of the party. You know, I had already run in 2019, 2020, and I felt that the the best way that I could go into this AGM was really being clear with our party members about that, so that I can actually focus on working the floor of the AGM and getting this, um, you know, historic constitutional amendment uh, vote passed for the leadership selection. I, I do believe that it is a major moment in our party. Um, it is a change. It's a big change. And it's going to take a lot of effort in bringing everyone together. I, I have to say, and Kim is, I know Kim, um, um, you know, so I, I do disagree that this, uh, this is going to be a weekend of division. 
Uh, you know, I've I've been to many gatherings, um, some tough ones, because as you know, I've run in four straight elections. And uh, even in 2018 and 2022, when our party didn't fare well, um, the good people of Scarborough Guildwood brought me back to Queen's Park and, uh, and I held my seat. And, you know, after each of those uh, times, we've had gatherings and, and we've always had um, a, an, an open and a frank discussion amongst our members of the party, um, people who, who, you know, devote their life uh, to the Ontario Liberal Party, care deeply, uh, are going to be there at the AGM. And, and that's what I want to focus on is, you know, how do we bring our party together focus on the grassroots, revitalize the grassroots, let everyone, uh, wherever they reside in this province, feel that they can be a part of this party. Remember, Bill, in 2022, 1.1 million people in Ontario voted for Liberal. And that's more than the NDP received. And uh, and so what it did not translate to was more seats. We, we only came away with eight seats. So we have a lot of work to do ahead of us. We know that. And it, it starts very much um, with the conversation we're going to have this weekend. And uh, uh, and, and the people who are coming out to do that hard work. Okay, so that's a definite no. Then you will not be a candidate for the no, leadership? I won't, yeah. Sadly, I mean, the, the, you know, the Ontario Liberals, that's my second family. I, I love my Ontario Liberals. And uh, I can contribute very much in other ways uh, at the rebuilding. And I'm that, that's what I'm going to do. Okay, but on that point, how do you feel about the Mike Schreiner draft uh, resolution that a number of your uh, your party members uh, took upon themselves a little while ago? A number of key members of the party, of course, signed that letter asking him to do it. Now, so he's, of course, as we all know, eventually said, no way. Uh, but a lot of people looked at that and said, boy, this is a party that's desperate. They can't even find anybody within their own party to, to run the, the for the leadership. Uh, now, you were not involved in that as far as we know anyway, but what, what's, what's your feeling about the, the message that sends to the Ontario voters? Well, you know, first of all, I, I wasn't surprised at uh, Mike Schreiner's decision. I actually sit beside him in the legislature. So, you know, um, we, we talk all the time. So I, I wasn't surprised that uh, that he was going to stay the, the Green Party leader, um, you know, what uh, what it says is that you know we we have to have uh, a robust debate around who is the the leader that we want for for taking us into the 2026 election. We have some really good people that have uh, put their name forward and are exploring a potential run. Uh, Yasser Nakvi, um, who I served with, um, and Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, uh, of course, Ted Shu, who is uh, in, currently in our caucus, Stephanie Bowman uh, is, uh, is exploring and considering it. Um, people who are, are elected, have been um, members of the party for a very long time. And, and that's, we also think that there are more people to come as well. And so, cause we don't have a race yet. The race hasn't been declared. We have to elect a new executive, which we will be doing this weekend. And then that new executive will set out the terms of the race. And, and so we believe we're going to have a very exciting race. You know, unlike the NDP, they didn't have a race at all. It was just, you know, um, one person who managed to put her name forward and and, you know, it, it, it really gave her a bit of a cold start. So I, I believe that uh, we will have momentum with our leadership race and there will be, uh, you know, great people putting themselves forward, having a robust debate as well about what the policies are, what the priorities are for the people of Ontario that will be reflected in an, an Ontario Liberal uh, administration. 
I, I mean, we know what we're running people. I mean, <clears throat> it's a small caucus you have that sits in the legislature, but but anybody who's a party member, of course, can run. I mean, you know, Mayor Bonnie, Bonnie Crombie from Mississauga, who's a former, of course, MPP, uh, his her name is rumored. Uh, Jeff Lehman, the former mayor of Barry, uh, that uh, that ran unsuccessfully for the Liberals uh, in the last provincial election. Now, there's a lot of names out there. So uh, the mm -hmm. determination as to how this is going to be governed, who's going to be eligible, et cetera, et cetera, is going to be a key part of this. But is there a, a, a concern here, though, Mitzi, that when this is all over and said at the end of the weekend, all said and done, uh, that people have will have a clearer picture as to what the liberals stand for. I mean, you've heard the criticisms over the last number of years that well, they went too far to the left, and they 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 you know their 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 success in the past has been a kind of a centrist party, and they've abandoned that. And uh, and you know where are you now, and where are you where are you heading right now, and and you know how do you define what an Ontario liberal is? Yeah, I mean, this is not a policy convention that we're having this weekend. This weekend is about, you know, what our executive will look like, what the rules will will be around uh, selecting our next leader, uh, many exciting things that we're going to be deciding that then will uh, determine who leads and, uh, and of course, what policies and, and platforms we will develop. Um, you know, there's no question that Ontario Liberals are the progressive party uh, for Ontario uh, the centrist party um, as well. And, uh, you know, we we are the ones that, you know, brought in things like full day kindergarten that, you know, people rely on that um, now. And, and you know, health care is a big debate in, in our province right now. What kind of health care system do we want? You know, when people, you know, in Hamilton, in London need, um, uh, you know, a, a doctor or they need uh, a procedure done, is this going to be done uh, in our public health care system or is there going to be some sort of, uh, you know, other people jumping the queue because they can afford to do it and in terms of a private uh, system. So so these are, are massive debates that we're having in our province. And, and you can count on the fact that Ontario Liberals will be right there. I do want to also say that there is a by-election right now in Hamilton and we have a fantastic candidate, very well known um, in Hamilton, Deirdre Pike. And uh, so we're hoping to grow from uh, from eight seats to nine uh, yeah, on March 15th. And, and there's no shortage of issues. I mean, we've, we've talked about them on the program many times that, you know, the Greenbelt incursions, highway constructions are not, uh, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So uh, lots to chew about, and it's going to be an interesting weekend uh, in Hamilton. Mitzi, as always, thank you so much. Good talking with you again, and uh, good luck in the future. Thanks so much, Bill. Thanks for having me. Take care. Mitzi Hunter, MPP for Scarborough Guildwood. Uh, and there's a, a breaking news story right now. She will not be a candidate for the Ontario Liberal leadership. Uh, she was rumored to be one of the, fr the front runners, as a matter of fact, over the last couple of weeks. But uh, apparently it's uh, going to be thanks, but no thanks. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Representatives from the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, the RCMP, and Elections Canada will return to the House Affairs Committee, where some of them have testified before, while CSIS Director David Vigneault is set to appear for the first time. Yesterday, the committee heard from National Security Advisor Jody Thomas and members of a task force that provides government officials with information about possible threats to elections. At the meeting, New Democrat MP Peter Julian called for a public inquiry into foreign interference in the 2019 and 2021 federal elections, something the Bloc Québécois and Conservatives also want. Laurie Paris, The Canadian Press. Thank you, Laurie. This is The Bill Kelly Show.
980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Good to have you with us today. Uh, what turned out to be a, a bit of an inconvenience, I guess, for the government is turning into, a, well, a, a major problem, uh, and that being the uh, the whole concept of foreign interference in Canadian elections. Uh, but as we start to, to dig a little deeper into this, as uh, so many good reporters have done over the last little while, uh, including some of uh, the folks of Robert Fife and, and others, uh, Stephen Chase, who we had on the program yesterday from the Globe and Mail, uh, this is a deeper story here that is very, very troubling. Uh, joining us to talk about what we know and uh, what we may find out today, I'm pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Michael Kempa, who is an Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. Uh, Michael, a pleasure to have you back on. Thanks so much for the time today. Okay, thanks, Bill. This is this is morphed into, uh, well, you know, maybe they tried to send some f misinformation out, they tried to influence one or two writings in B.C., uh, to huge cash donations made to, well, a charitable fund, possibly cash donations made to some uh, political candidates, uh, most of them, by the way, liberals, uh, which is, I, I, I think, I, I, I'm not so sure if what we know is what's scaring us or what we might find out further down the road about this that maybe scares us even more. I think it's a bit of both there, Bill, in that um, this is an ongoing issue that's been a problem for at least two decades. Uh, foreign interference in the Canadian electoral process is nothing new. What is a little bit shocking, though, is it seems the depth of the networks that are mobilized here and the fact that uh, the government has been warned about these issues on multiple occasions, but seems to have taken very little action. I think that's got a lot to do with why CSIS would have leaked some of this information, it's pure frustration and concern over the issue. Well, and, and I know it's, I, I guess, in the eye of the beholder, because the Prime Minister's assertion, as you and I talked about the other day, is, well, I'm very concerned about the fact that this was leaked from CSIS. Well, okay, on that level, maybe you are, Mr. Prime Minister. But on the other level, our, our CSIS uh, and, and some of the people that are doing this research into what could be going on here, simply saying, these guys aren't paying attention. This is this is a national security issue. Uh, this is This is falling under the realm of whistleblower now, isn't it? Oh, definitely. That is what it, it seems to be. It's a whistleblower situation. And I have to say that I would almost understand CSIS's frustration in that the response of the prime minister after this has become a public matter has also been frustrating, uh, where, you know, at first it was almost a denial that there had been any briefing at all. And then a fallback to the defense. Well, this didn't affect the overall election. That is not the issue. Nobody has said that. And then the issue of, well, CSIS doesn't decide who should and shouldn't run. Again, nobody has said that. And then finally, the defense of asking any questions is simply a racist practice. Well, Chinese associations across Canada have said that it's essential to look into these issues because it's very often members of the Chinese community who are targeted by the influencers and threatened into getting involved in ways that they may not want to. So I'm not happy with that response, and I would understand why CSIS would have been frustrated. Well, and we've seen this happen played out in in various other ways, though, haven't we, Michael? I mean, both the liberals and and conservatives, for that matter, uh, have dismissed candidates in elections because uh, something untoward has been uncovered about their past or some comments that they've made, et cetera. Uh, so it, it's not without precedent. And and if in fact CSIS has proof, and they seem to indicate that they do, uh, that some of these MPs may have been involved in some way, shape, or form. Uh, you know, it, it's behoove, incumbent, I guess, for the prime minister to say, well, at least let's look into that. But he doesn't just seem to want to even do that. Instead, he's just endorsing these people. They're fine people. They're fine MPs. That's not the issue. It's 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 how they got there and, and, and who was with them and who was associated with them in, in that whole process. Well, this for me comes down to the question of nominations. The nominations process, it's very inside baseball. A lot of Canadians don't pay a lot of attention to it. 
But nominations for how candidates are picked to begin with are not really governed by the Elections Act. Uh, they're mostly set by private rules. And I can tell you from having run one back in 2015 that they are very much the Wild West of Canadian politics. All kinds of illegal and immoral things happen in nominations processes. And for that reason, I started to look into it a little bit. I thought maybe it was my bias showing. So I checked in with some sources at CSIS and they confirmed for me it's absolutely a weak link in the electoral process and something that foreign actors are targeting because it's easy for them to get in there. And for a small investment, they can have an outsized return in getting their preferred candidates elected. So, and, and that's the foot in the door, isn't it? That's the foot in the door. It's not about swaying an overall election. It's not, unlike the United States, we don't vote directly for the president or the prime minister. We vote for our member of parliament in 338 contests across the country. It's about getting five, six, 12 members of parliament in there who then might be sympathetic to the interests of foreign governments, in this case, China. So they're hoping to have people in there that will sway votes one way or another. And also what they hope for is minority government situations that are unstable, because unstable governments very rarely succeed in putting together complicated programs that may not be in the interests of foreign powers. For example, a form of sanctions or economic sanctions against China for uh, the, the genocide of the Uyghur population, the Muslim population of China, a minority parliament would be very unlikely to get its act together to put policies together on that scale, and that would be something that would be in the Republic of China's interests. Are you surprised at, at if would to believe what we've been told so far anyway, and I guess we'll get some clarity on that uh, today with the hearings, uh, about how organized and, and, and uh, well, maybe we'll find out how efficient, but th th there's a game plan here. I mean, the initial characterization, Michael, was, uh, well, these guys aren't really that good at that. They're just trying to influence us in, in whatever way they can. And as you say, maybe get a couple of MPs who are going to be sympathetic. But it sounds as if there's a rather large amount of cash that has been put into this, and you know, it whether it's to, to run campaigns, uh, the donation to the Pierre Trudeau Fund is, is is questioned right now about exactly what's going on, but there seems to be a, an overall plan here that they seem to be following. It's a it's an organized plan and it's a long running plan, and different countries have different levels of sophistication. The most sophisticated set of foreign operations is run by the Chinese Republic. Uh, Russia obviously has many of its own problems right now; they're less organized. Iran is a little bit more random in their efforts. But China has, in fact, been running a decades-long program to get essentially tentacles into the state institutions of the Western democracies, whether we're talking media, university environments through study centers, police station operations, and ultimately elected office. And it's an extremely patient program. Unlike the West, they don't play the short game. And it's something that if we don't get on top of it, will cause serious problems in undermining faith in the electoral process. One of the things I guess we need to get some clarity on is ex exactly who's involved in this. And uh, you, uh, you touched on this a, a couple of days ago, I guess, in one of our conversations. And, you know, the old idea of spies, you know, the cloak and dagger, you know, and they, they break into the place in the middle of the, like the Watergate thing. Uh, this is all done, a lot of it through Internet, through social media, uh, and, and looking for people who are sympathetic, not just Chinese nationals necessarily, but people that may have been over here for some time that are still linked in some way, shape, or form uh, to the government in China right now. And it's 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 basically uh, they're the, the surrogates, I guess, for, for the, what the Chinese government's trying to do here. And that's true. And this is where we got into that question of some of the so-called police stations that were yeah. – um, 
almost like outpost office of the of the Chinese Republic, where they were essentially leaning on Chinese nationals who may be naturalized now as Canadian citizens uh, to do their bidding under threat that their relatives back in mainland China uh, could come under either attention of the state, threat of the state, introduction into um, you know, uh, social reintroduction type camps where they uh, reprogram people in a sense uh, to respect the political dispensation in China. So this is a very big problem and it's not as simple as saying there are just individuals in Canada who are being preyed upon. They're being preyed upon with connections to family and friends back in mainland China. Uh, and, and as you say, maybe unwilling, but you know, the, the pressure is on them right now. Uh, hey, you know, I want you to contact this person or, hey, deliver this check or, hey, make this, as we found out the other day, make this contrib- contribution. We'll reimburse you for it, but you do that. And, and that opens the door for them as well. Uh, and, and we're just starting to learn a little bit of this. And, and I guess the question we, we seem to be leading to, and it's one that the prime minister has been asked numerous times in the last little while now, Michael, is uh, why not have an inquiry? I mean, if, if, you, if, if the prime minister himself has some concerns about what was leaked or were not leaked and, and, and where that source may have been from, uh, it would serve everybody's best interest to do uh, just to, to put this all out on the table with an inquiry, wouldn't it? So this is what I've been pondering really carefully for the last week. There are pluses and minuses to resolving the issue through either existing mechanisms like the parliamentary committees or an inquiry or using regular police activity. What I've seen in the last five or six days, I don't think the ordinary mechanisms will cut it. I do think we do need an inquiry. Uh, I'm going to sort of weigh up these pros and cons for a piece that I'm putting together for the National Post for for tomorrow morning. Um, I would say we should divide an inquiry into two pieces, one of which is sort of short-term immediate issues that could be resolved within six months in time for an election, things to do with what exactly was going on in Toronto. And then a longer piece to the inquiry that would address some systemic issues, simply for the reason that that part of the inquiry would probably run so long that we might have an election in our laps before that would ever see the light of day. Uh, but, you know, the, and the argument in favor of that is still, well, you know, it, so what if it's going to take long? At least we're going to get to the truth. Uh, did not the uh, the uh, congressional uh, committee that was struck in the states about Russian interference, that lasted almost two and a half years, didn't it? Two and a half years. And they uncovered very serious findings that are the basis of significant structural reforms to the American political system. That's why I say we do the sort of immediate stuff as quickly as possible in time for the next election. But yes, if we have an inquiry, there's no problem with it going on for a year or two uh, to sort of set up our own long game to counter that long game I described coming from foreign powers, most especially the Chinese government and to a certain extent, Russia. How... Much of this is the fact that maybe I'm not suggesting there are there are rules and regulations or guardrails, I guess, for this now. It, it, but it, any rule or anything like that, Michael, is only as good as the enforcement on it. And I'm getting the impression from uh, some of the tidbits we're getting out of some of these leaked documents right now uh, that, as you say, Canadian authorities were aware of this. They were being told about this, and they didn't do much about it. Uh, you know, we've talked about things like foreign registries and 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 even you know financial or other kinds of penalties for for the offenders in this. Uh, that doesn't seem to be happening here in Canada? It doesn't. Uh, there's been, I think, probably with politicians with some awareness of the scope of the problem, were a bit reluctant to take action because they didn't want to sort of blow up on their watch where they might be punished electorally. In terms of the police not tackling these issues, I mean, this falls within the bailiwick of the RCMP. Yeah. Uh, my sources in the RCMP say we'd be very reluctant to touch it We're not confident that we would do a very good job in investigating it. 
In the end, who would we charge? Very many of the so-called perpetrators would be members of foreign embassies, and we'd burn a bunch of sources for CSIS that are contributing the intelligence that we need to uncover the nature of the broader networks. So it's sort of a combination. They're not very confident they'd be able to do a good job, and they wouldn't want to sort of stumble into a couple of small convictions that would upset the bigger intelligence apple cart. This is a you know p- pushing back the curtain on something that, as you say, uh, maybe CSIS and the RCMP don't want pushed back. I mean, as you, it's it's spy versus spy. You know that individual there we, we're, we're suggesting might have been complicit in this whole process, and and they may come back and say, well, yeah, but they're working for us too, uh, and the other side doesn't know that. I mean, it's a it's a very intricate game that's going on here that that we're usually just not privy to any of this information right now. So I'm wondering if the RCMP and maybe even to a certain extent CSIS are very wary about just how deep we want to dig into this. I would say CSIS is more willing to dig deeper because a lot of what they would uncover would be national security intelligence that would never see the public light of day. Uh, In an inquiry, a judge would review that material and sign an attestation that they had reviewed it and come to a judgment, but it would then not be released to the public. So it would preserve the national security integrity. Um, What I think this is sort of adding up to, though, is that you've got to do this inquiry on the basis that if we do not, and we further shake faith in the integrity of the election system, you might as well hand the sledgehammer to the opponents of the modern state, because you'll decrease voter turnout, you'll decrease people participation in the legitimate streams of democratic process, and you'll have people seek out more and more fringe activity Uh, which is where the recruitment lies at the moment and the people who have an interest in stirring up lack of satisfaction in the electoral process. Is the Prime Minister going to have to do an about turn here and and, and order this this inquiry? I mean, it just seems as if the pressure is mounting here. It is mounting. And this, to me, is almost like Jagmeet Singh's moment, where if he's going to stand on principle and say, we either have an inquiry and this is a confidence motion, we'll withdraw support and we'll go to the polls, he'd really be calling the prime minister's bluff. And the prime minister, like every good politician, will do a calculation. Are we better off having everything revealed through an inquiry? Or will we be killed in an election for not allowing an inquiry to happen and being sent to the polls by three united parties that wanted an inquiry? They'll do that calculation and they'll make the decision. I suspect they're better off with an inquiry as ugly as it might be. As, yeah, I mean, it can be embarrassing. Uh, it can be frightening, that sort of stuff that's uncovered. Uh, but I agree with you. I think this is a pivotal moment in this government right now. Because if you say if Mr. Singh uh, follows through on this, uh, this government probably falls. And, and who knows where that's going to end up. Look, hey, listen, Michael, we're going to look forward to your article in the National Post tomorrow. Uh, thanks, as always, for your input into this. Great uh, conversation again today. Always, Bill. Thank you. Take care. Michael Kempka, Associate Professor in Criminology at the University of Ottawa. As we say, the CSIS Director is, is going to be testifying today at this Parliamentary Committee, but uh, uh, the focus, I think, is going to be on the Prime Minister's office to see how are they going to respond to this, because uh, a number of different sources right now are saying, look, let's like we did with the Emergencies Act and, and a number of other things, let's do this right hire somebody, uh, a judge, whatever the case might be, do a proper inquiry, bring people in under oath, and find out just what's going on here. And I think that's probably where we're headed. Uh, when that's going to happen, well, I would ho- hope anyway, sooner than later. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
the uh, Loblaws folks are, uh, well, in hot water once again. Uh, we talked about the rising grocery prices and, and the concerns about price fixing that have gone on for some time now, long before the pandemic, as a matter of fact. And uh, they've, uh, if nothing, increased in volume over the last little while because of this. Uh, now uh, they are in deep into it once again because of, uh, well, a policy, I guess, that they've developed. Uh, about asking for uh, cash donations uh, when you're at the cash register checking out and paying those exorbitant fees for your groceries these days. Uh, they want you to contribute uh, to the President's Choice Children's Charity uh, to what they say help feed kids here in Ontario. And uh, there's a lot of pushback from a lot of people about this that say, you have the audacity to ask me for even more money after I've just you know paid God knows how much for, for groceries and for lettuce and all the other things that are going on. Uh, it seems to be a, a PR disaster here. And you wonder, A, why you know, they, they decided to go into this sort of thing and, and whose decision it was and, and how they're going to get out of it and try to escape some of the, the negativity that seems to be surrounding this company these days. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Joanne McNeese. Joanne is an associate professor of marketing at uh, Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, Joanne, always a pleasure. Good to talk with you again. Good morning, Bill. On a not a sunny day, but no snow. Yay! Well, so far, anyway. <laughs> yeah, ask, ask me in twenty four hours, I guess. But that's yeah, you know, this is Canada, eh? So we're kind of used uh, to this, right? So, and so Canadians will have snow this weekend, and Loblaws has yet another controversy. So. As always, we've got to remind ourselves, Loblaws is the market leader in groceries. And so when you're going to attack someone for a behavior, you go to the leader because you're going to get the most press and it's going to be spread most widely. Um, all the grocery stores do this kind of campaign. And it's actually, um, so there's lots of criticism on social media, but I have a feeling people aren't thinking about what this company is doing. So, uh, we can, we can talk about Loblaws, but let's talk about the good that these campaigns do. Um, these kind of campaigns, we don't have accurate measurements in Canada, so we don't collect the data here, but in the U.S. where they collect the data, it's $486 million a year from a checkout uh, uh, point of sale campaign. So if we take a 10% difference, that means that probably in Canada, these campaigns raise about $50 million. What's really important about these campaigns is the money that they save the charities that they're involved in. So these companies have to establish a relationship with the charity, but the charity doesn't have to issue multiple tax receipts, mail them out, manage a database. So it's a real bonus for the charity. It also reduces their effort. It's money that's received by them in a lump sum payment. So it's really positive for these charities. Um, and, uh, it's an easy, it's also convenient for the people that like them. And admittedly in surveys done by the grocery industry, about 50% of people don't particularly like them or are annoyed by them, but 50% of the people like it because they can give, they can give what they can. So it's a, it might be a toonie or a loony. Um, and it's really convenient for the giver as well, because it still takes effort. I've got to look up the charity. Do they have an app? Do they have a website? Or do I have to put it in the mail? And, and you know, we're all busy people, so I might not remember to do it. So it's just a quick way for me to give. So there's actually a lot of benefits and really important for the charities. Because for some of these charities, it's a big chunk of the money that they receive each year. 
Well, exactly. But and I, by the way, in the interest of full disclosure, I, I contribute. I, I don't necessarily remember doing it at Loblaws, but uh, you know, a right. couple of weeks ago, I was over at the LCBO getting a bottle of wine. We were having some people over, and hey, do you want to make a donation for the, the children's hospital? Yeah, sure, of course. You know, two bucks, five bucks, whatever. Uh, you know, they're not asking you to drain your wallet, but I know it's going to a good cause. Or the United Way, we usually contribute to as well. Uh, so I see right. that. I, I, and I, and sorry, just to add on to that, it actually costs the company money eh? because they have yeah. to set up in their accounting system the, the reputable companies. And I think we would argue that we have no suspicions. Loblaws is a reputable company. Uh, I, I get people are annoyed by the price increases, but from a point of view of managing their books really well, they have to now set this uh, code up in their system, redo the software, allocate the money, account for the money, pay the money. So so they have to buy a specific system. So people forget this isn't like a free thing that they're doing. It costs them money. And by the way, the tax accountants have some disagreement as to whether they actually get a tax receipt for this. Because, because a customer donated, that actually means that Loblaws or any other company should not be getting a tax receipt because they themselves are not making the donation. So, but, but tax people disagree on how that happens. So I'm not going to speak definitively because I'm not good on a tax things. <laughs> uh, but, but it would be interesting in Canada because in the U.S. it's unequivocal. The company cannot take a tax deduction for these kind of donations. Well, we'll leave Robert Canada to sort that out. There's a lot of good things and people overlooking the expense to the company. I think the the, the concern here, though, I guess right now, though, isn't it, Joanne, is that uh, right now the the Loblaws brand is is not held in high regard by an awful lot of people. And and whether it's right or not or justified or not, uh, that's almost inconsequential. People are angry right now and they're angry at Loblaws, they're angry at Sobeys, they're angry at everybody. Because uh, they're paying, you know, exorbitant amount of fees for groceries these days, uh, and yes. you know, we we've had the debate on this show, and I think just about every newspaper and, and radio station said the same thing. You know, is it their fault? Is it the suppliers? As consumers, we don't much care, do we? We're just angry that we no. have to do this, and we we feel victimized. So, Bill, you always catch the spirit of the story, and that's exactly it. Is that we're we're mad right now and there's an old old movie where the guy said i'm not gonna it was a yeah. male actor and an actor who identifies as male um I'm, I'm mad as hell and i'm not going to take it anymore and so what we look for is opportunities regardless of the behavior so even if we can convince people to accept the fact this is really important for charities and helps them out and saves the money we're so mad. We just want to criticize people. And so Loblaws in this particular case, it becomes, um, uh, it's sort of a phenomenon that you choose one brand and you attack them over and over again, because we don't see a lot of plates. Sobeys, Metro, Longos, everybody has these, kind. everybody uses these campaigns at some point or other, but Loblaws is the one that gets the, um, the, the anger. And it's when we feel out of control, we lash out uh, at somebody and somebody has to be at fault because it can't be our fault. And, you know, people are trying to figure out this new world and it's going to take us three to five years to sort out what a post, a new normal looks like post COVID. COVID had a huge impact um, on the world. But now we're just cranky because we're exhausted from COVID and it, and the hits just keep coming. So if you have a mortgage and you had a variable rate, you might be paying more for your mortgage. Well, now you don't have as much money to go to the grocery store. So the things that you got used to buying 
um, are too expensive or maybe out of your range. Or even worse, you get to the store and the thing that you could have substitute is not available because shortages are starting to appear on shelves. So maybe where normally I could buy the cheaper brand, it's not on the shelf right now. I've got, if I need it, I have to buy the more expensive thing. So you've actually caught that spirit of people are just incredibly cranky and lashing out on social media feels like people are doing something. I'm not convinced it does anything and it, and it can have a reaction where companies start to say, well, you know what? Maybe participating less in these corporate cause in, in corporate philanthropic uh, activities. Maybe that's the decision we make. And that's a real shame for these charities that are really depending on these money. Loblaws, for example, very supportive along with Metro and Sobe, uh, with the food bank. Well, maybe they're going to decide not to participate or not to participate as visibly. That's also an impact on the charity. So when people are criticizing, they're actually causing damage to the charity, less to Loblaws. But people are cranky and they just want to complain right now. Well, yeah, it doesn't and, and they know, like they realize lot. Galen Weston's probably not going to return their phone call. Uh, so they lash out at whoever's <laughs> in front of them. And, and he, John, we get the same thing. You know, if the price of gas goes up around the corner of my gas station tomorrow, uh, you know, and, and I invariably every time I see, the, you know, the poor clerk is getting out the heat from all these people. Mm. They raising the, it, he didn't do it or she didn't do it. You know, it's those right. decisions are made way, way up the corporate ladder. Uh, but you you want you want to complain to somebody. So you're going to complain to the person who's right in front of you because they're the representative. It's, it's not fair, uh, but it's, right. sadly, it's the way things seem to happen, isn't it? It, it, it literally is. And in fact, even in reaction to a show like this, I'm sure you might get criticism because you didn't take the point of view that one of your listeners wanted to hear. But the importance of these kind of discussions is, can we start thinking about the bigger issues? Again, I'm not for or against Loblaws or Sobe or Metro. I think they're great brands. And I, what I feel sad about is the very companies those retail clerks, those retail managers, they went today to, to work every day during COVID. Uh, they worked really hard. They took a lot of abuse. They had to make a lot of changes in their stores uh, in terms of masking and signage and barriers, all of which are costs that they have to deal with. But we've sort of forgotten the gratitude we felt for them to for them continuing to work and operate and get our supplies. They were deemed essential businesses because we are cranky. And, and you know, we all do it when we're frustrated and angry, whether it's gas, whether it's groceries, whether it's bank, whether it's telecoms. We're complaining because we don't feel like companies are listening to us. So two things. I think companies need to think about how should we listen to customers and how should we respond? Can we find a new way of responding? Are these checkout campaigns uh, the way to do it? And I, from a charitable, charity point of view, nonprofit point of view, they're essential to keeping them going, essential to awareness building, essential to the financial donations. So, but, but maybe companies now have a responsibility to be more informative, not through the checkout clerk. I feel so sorry for them when you yep. can feel their shoulders go up. Exactly what you said, <laughs> the poor gas clerk. Please don't yell at me. I didn't do it. <laughs> exactly. But the other, the other thing well, is I, customers. I, I got to leave it there, Joanne. We're just about out of oh, time here. Uh, we're a little yeah. tight. And, and don't take it out on me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> to your point. 
Uh, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for this. Stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Hey, thanks, Bill. Talk to you soon. Bye. Take care. Joanna McNeish uh, from uh, Toronto's Metropolitan University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.